Well, good morning. It's nice to see all of you this morning. My name is Jeremy Lundgren. I'm uh, one of the pastors here. I work with the youth group and one of the elders here at Hope Fellowship. And uh, we're going to be looking this morning in Acts chapter 15. So in just a minute, I'm going to read Acts chapter 15, verses 1 through 5 to get us started. And then after that, I will pray and we will spend some time working our way through that chapter, spending some time together in God's Word. So listen as I read Acts 15, 1 through 5. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it's necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Well, we ended on kind of a a question there, a a little bit of a down verse, but that's where we're going to stop for now, and I'm going to pray, and then we will uh, keep going to see how that, uh, that claim that it's necessary to order them to keep the law of Moses, we're going to see how that plays out. So would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning as our creator, uh, the one who made us and knows us and loves us. We're grateful to serve you, Christ, as the living Lord. Uh, We're grateful for your spirit who gives us new life, who gives us understanding and power. We're grateful that the book of Acts, it's not just history. It's not just the story of the early church. It's not just the story of Peter and James, Paul and Barnabas. But God, it is your word. It's the story of uh, the church today as well, uh, revealing to us uh, the movement and the power of the gospel in this world, movement that continues uh, in our church, in our lives, and in this world. So would you use your word this morning to help us better understand and appreciate the significance of what took place in those early days of the church? Uh, Help us to understand what took place as as just shockwaves of hope resonated out from the cross. And as uh, your disciples, Christ, and as the world around them uh, sought to make sense of you, Jesus, uh, the living Lord, the crucified Savior. So would you show us what it means uh, to be saved by grace? Would you give us uh, the freedom that comes through surrender? Would you give us Uh, the joy that comes through sacrifice? Would you give us the hope that's grounded in truth? As we stop trying to justify ourselves, as we stop clinging to our lives, uh, but as we offer them up in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. So when I was in college, I remember in one of my classes, the professor at the end of the class said, said he was going to give us something the next class period. Either there was going to be a big assignment due or there's going to be a pop quiz or I don't know, there's something that stressed all of us out. So the next class period comes around and it starts and he doesn't mention anything about this quiz or assignment that he's going to have us do and he keeps talking and teaching the lesson and so as the class period's going on, you know, whispers start circulating around the class. Did he forget about it? Do we still have to do that thing? What's going on about that, 
that thing going on. And then, you know, time keeps going on and then we start to have hope. Like, maybe you forgot about it. Oh, there's not enough time. You know, let's just, let's just wait out. Like, everyone, keep, keep him going so the class will end. And then, as we're running out of time, some guy raises his hand, reminds the professor about this thing and asks, so are we going to do that or not? And you can imagine, you know, pencils started flying at the guy. I think someone like really like reached back and slapped him in the back of the head. And we're like, oh, come on, like, don't, don't bring it up. We don't want to talk about that. But however uh, frustrated those of us in the class might have been at the guy, we can at least say this for him. He forced the issue, right? One way or another, we would soon know for sure whether or not we were going to have to do that assignment. And it's kind of like these men in Acts 15 who went around telling the Gentile believers that they needed to follow the law of Moses to be saved, right? So these men are stirring things up. They're causing trouble when things have been going smoothly. And I don't really know what was motivating that guy in our class that day. But, you know, sometimes people will stir up trouble uh, maybe just out of ignorance. They don't really know what they're saying. Sometimes people will do it maybe more maliciously, right? They want to cause trouble. They want to cause dissension and division. But the good news for us as Christians, the good news for us as the church, is that God works through the trouble that those sorts of people stir up. Um, you know, regardless of their motivations, he works through them to help give us a better understanding of the gospel, to help give us greater certainty of what we believe to be true about Christ. In a lot of ways, I think just the history of the church in general, you see that where times when the church has good growth or greater clarity on the gospel, on what it believes to be true, on what the Bible teaches, oftentimes that growth is stimulated by false teachers, right? By people making false claims about who Jesus is, about what the Bible teaches. And uh, in Acts 15, we're going to see that that's no exception uh, to this rule. Now, <clears throat> that doesn't mean that any of us should go and appoint ourselves to, to such a task, right, to such a role, but sometimes the issue's forced like it was that day in class, right? We had hoped that we wouldn't have to do the extra work, but then when the professor was asked about it directly, right, for better or worse, we were going to soon have certainty. We would soon know for sure. And thankfully, the professor, who had probably forgotten about it himself, said, no, I'm not going to make you do that. But here in Acts 15, we have a much more important issue at stake, right? A much more important question. And the question is this, do Christians need to follow the law of Moses? And this is a big question. It might seem, you know, kind of far off from your world today, your life today. But it's, a, it's an important question because it's central to the heart of the gospel and it's central to the identity of the church. Um, so, it helps bring resolution to tensions that have been building, particularly in the early church, about the relationship between the law and the gospel. In fact, Acts 15 helps bring resolution to tensions and even hostilities, I would say, that have been building up basically back since Genesis chapter 12, not just about the relationship between the law and the gospel, but about the relationship between Israel, the nation that God had given the law, and the Gentiles, all the other nations around Israel. So, because that's such an important question, that question of whether or not 
Christians need to follow the Old Testament law. I want to begin uh, this morning by spending a bit of time kind of thinking about that question and putting it in its broader biblical context. So that's what we're going to do, do first. And then we're going to work our way through three tensions that we see arise in Acts chapter 15. Three tensions that are uh, kind of related to or circulate around that primary question of the relationship of Christians to the law. So we're going to see a theological tension, we're going to see a cultural tension, and then we're going to see a personal tension. So that's what we'll do second. We'll work through those three tensions. And then finally, we're going to conclude by focusing in on one particular phrase, one particular word even, in Acts 15, 26, that's going to help us see how we should be approaching these sorts of tensions. What sort of posture of heart we should have, what sort of frame of mind or disposition we should have as we face these sorts of tensions in our lives today. And here's my aim for us. Here's kind of what I want you to see from Acts chapter 15. I think it'll be up on the screen. Because Christ brings resolution to the tensions between you and God and between you and others, you ought to devote your life to his name. And let me just make a brief comment about that word tensions. Sometimes I thought that word tension was a good word to use there. Sometimes I thought it wasn't strong enough. Sometimes I thought the word hostility uh, might be better. And you're kind of like, well, what's the difference between tension and hostility? Well, you're on a first date and you know, the other person does something annoying and you're kind of like, oh, that's kind of annoying. That's tension, right? Uh, on like, you know, several dates later, you're like, why are you always doing that annoying thing? That's hostility. So that's kind of the difference between tension and hostility, right? Tension is like, right, two things moving in different directions. There's kind of some underlying stresses, but then hostility is maybe where there's more like a state of open war, right? Where you're, you're, you're at each other, you're kind of adverse, adversely facing each other. So, we talk about these tensions, sometimes maybe the word hostility is more appropriate. All right, so that's my main point, uh, but let's start first uh, with section one on kind of looking at that big question, do you need to follow the law of Moses? And uh, sorry to ruin the surprise for any of you, uh, but I'm going to go ahead and tell you the answer up front. The answer is an emphatic no. Uh, in the history of Christianity, in the New Testament, Whenever that question is raised, whenever that question is asked, do you, as a Christian, uh, in, or in order to become a Christian, do you have to follow the law? Do you have to obey it? And every time that question is raised um, regarding a follower of Christ, God looks at you, a sinner, he looks at the cross, and his answer is always an emphatic no. You do not have to obey the law in order to be saved. As I said, though, uh, the tensions kind of addressed here in Acts 15 have been building since Genesis 12. Uh, and maybe you're thinking, wow, Gen going all the way back to Genesis 12 just to, just to introduce Acts 15, have you gone, far, gone back far enough? Well, maybe not. So actually, let's look in Genesis 11, uh, or don't, don't go there, but, but just think about Genesis 11, which is the chapter about the Tower of Babel. So if we go back to that time, that ancient time, that was a time when all those ancient people were culturally unified. Think about it. They all spoke the same language. They had all gathered together in the same place, the plains of Shinar. And they were all unified with the same purpose. Their purpose was to build a city, to build a tower, and to make a name for themselves. But we know what happened, right? With, at the Tower of Babel, God frustrated their efforts. 
And God didn't do that because he felt sorry for himself, right? It's not as if God was like, hey, what are they all doing down there? Why, why didn't they invite me? And so then he, you know, broke up their party, scattered them. No, that's not what motivated God. Instead, God knows the human heart. He knows the guilt of our sins. He knows that our works are corrupt. He knows that they can't bear up under their own pressure, under their own weight. So he scattered the people, he divided their languages, and um, made those people who had gathered together in their own name, not under his name, you know, disperse across the face of the earth. But then in the very next chapter, in, in Genesis chapter 12, God starts the long, slow process of gathering rebellious people back to himself, not in their own name, but in his name. So God did that by starting with one man, Abraham. And God said to Abraham, in you, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. And then God called the descendants of Abraham, the nation of Israel, to be holy. He called them to be a people set apart for God. And then he gave them the law on Mount Sinai. He gave them the law through Moses. And he instructed them through the law on how they were to live. They were to be circumcised. They were to follow strict dietary restrictions. They had feasts that they had to observe and sacrifices that they were supposed to offer. And in relation to the nations around them, they were supposed to maintain a certain level of separation from others who didn't follow the law. So if a foreigner wanted to live in Israel, that person had to adhere to certain guidelines. And if an Israelite was interacting with Gentiles, they had to do so with certain restrictions in place. And so that's where this tension uh, or the tensions in Acts 15 begin to develop. All right, so clearly God is doing a work to unite people from all nations under his name. And clearly we see that he's doing that work through one specific people, the offspring of Abraham, the Jews. But how is that going to be accomplished? How's that unity, unity with God and unity with each other, how's that going to be accomplished? Is it going to be accomplished by human effort? Well, Israel had the law. They knew what they were supposed to do. But think about like the book of Judges or the book of Kings. Think of how often Israel fell into sin and idolatry. And then what's this unity going to look like? Will things go back to the, the way they were in Genesis 11, where the people were unified by one common culture? Uh, perhaps the Jewish culture, where people are unified by one common purpose, perhaps obedience to the law of Moses. So what should happen in the church as different cultures begin mixing with each other? That's kind of the question that's behind that question. Do the Gentiles, do Christians need to obey the law? So in Jerusalem, in the early days of the church, that wasn't really a pressing issue because all or most of the Christians, um, you know, were Jewish. They, they'd grown up under the law. But then Peter, if you remember, he was sent to a Gentile's house. He was sent to eat un food that had been unclean under the law with Cornelius. And then he preached Jesus to Cornelius and Cornelius and his household, they believed and they received the Holy Spirit and they were saved. And then similar things happen with Paul and Barnabas, where they're sent out from the church in Antioch, and they go through all these Gentile cities preaching the gospel. And again, Gentiles hear, and they believe, and they receive the Holy Spirit, and they're saved. And the church continued to grow, but it was growing not just within Israel, but it was growing in these other nations as well. And then that kind of brings us to the beginning of Acts chapter 15. And let me read chapter, or verse 1 again. Uh, but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, 
unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So that's kind of the big question that the church was facing in Acts 15. Are we saved by works or by grace? Do we earn our salvation or is it a gift from God? Well, in, in this first section here, I've been raising a lot of questions, uh, right, asking a lot of rhetorical questions, and I've also kind of given the answer up front, no, you don't have to follow the law of Moses. But let me just briefly explain why that is, why no is the answer. So I, I think I have a slide up here, kind of the answer to that question, do, do you need to follow the law of Moses? And the answer is this, you do not need to follow the law of Moses because it is unable to resolve the tensions between you and God and between you and others. Now, the law has its uses, right? It's, it's given by God, it's in his word, but its usefulness is limited by our weaknesses as sinful and fallen humans. So the law tells us how to resolve the tensions or the hostilities that exist between us and God, between us and each other. But here's what the law doesn't do. It doesn't give you the power to actually do what it tells you to do. Does that make sense? Have you ever had a time where you're like, I know what I'm supposed to be doing, but I just don't feel like it. Or I know what I'm supposed to be doing, but then a few minutes later I'm like, oh, no, I'm not doing that at all. I'm doing the complete opposite of that. So the law can tell you what to do, but it doesn't give you the power to do it. Here's how Martin Luther explains it. Some will object that the law is divine and holy. Let it be divine and holy. The law has no right to tell me that I must be justified by it. The law has the right to tell me that I should love God and my neighbor, that I should live in chastity, temperance, patience, etc. The law has no right to tell me how I may be delivered from sin, death, and hell. It's the gospel's business to tell me that. I must listen to the gospel. It tells me not what I must do, but what Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has done for me. So the law can't end the hostilities or resolve the tensions that exist between you and God, between you and others. And that's why the answer that the Holy Spirit gives to the church in those early days is no, you as a Christian do not have to follow the law of Moses. So with that in mind, uh, let's turn now with our second point to the gospel and where we're going to see that it does have the power to resolve those tensions, to resolve those hostilities. So my second main point here is this. The gospel is able to resolve the tensions between you and God and between you and others. So I said we were going to look at three tensions, a theological, cultural, and personal tension. So let's look first at that theological tension. And here's kind of what that's related to. Okay, if we're not saved by works of the law, then how are we saved? So uh, point A there, the gospel resolves the tensions between you and God. So let me, uh, let's jump back into Acts 15, and let me start reading in verse 6. I'm going to read verses 6 through 18. If you remember... Paul and Barnabas and a contingency from Antioch went to Jerusalem to kind of answer that question. Do the Gentile believers need to obey the law of Moses? So verse six, the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after that, there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. 
Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that they will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related, with, related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. So those Gentile believers in Antioch, they weren't raised under the law of Moses, right? They were maybe just happy sinners going about their business, doing their thing. But then they heard Paul and Barnabas say that they were sinners in need of redemption. They heard that Jesus had suffered and died for their sins, that he was risen from the dead to give them new life. So they believed and they were forgiven and they were given freedom and life and love and maybe they thought, wow, this is a really amazing thing. This is a really good thing uh, to be given salvation as a free gift through Christ. But you know how people say something's free and easy, and then you get into it, and there's some uh, right, hidden strings, right? some uh, other stipulations involved? Well, that's what these, uh, these uh, Pharisees, or those from the, the group of the Pharisees, were kind of doing to them, right? They show up and they say, well, no, actually, it, it's not really that simple. Actually, in order to really be saved, you also need to be circumcised and you need to follow the law of Moses. There are certain things that you need to do in order to actually be saved. So let me ask you, how do you envision salvation? Do you envision yourself in your own effort climbing out of the pit that you're in? Is that how you view salvation? Or do you envision yourself working as hard as you can, doing as much as you possibly can with Jesus showing up every once in a while to kind of give you a boost up? when you need it? Or do you envision yourself just stuck in the bottom of that pit forever uh, with no way out and no one who's ever going to show up to, to help you? Or do you see Jesus coming down to where you are in that pit and mercifully lifting you up and bringing you out of the trouble that you're in? That's how we should envision salvation. That's how the apostle Peter saw it right? The Apostle Peter, as he's explaining what happened with Cornelius, he saw hearts being cleansed, not by obedience to the law, but by faith in Christ. And so Peter said again in Acts 15, 11, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, just as they will. So we're saved by faith in Christ. And you know what? That verse right there, that's the last appearance. Those are the last words of the Apostle Peter in the book of Acts. But what a great way to exit. Right, so years earlier, uh, when Peter confessed to Jesus that he's Christ and Lord, Jesus said to him, Peter, upon this rock, upon this confession, I'm going to build my church. And then we see right here, we see that, uh, th those words of Jesus being fulfilled as Peter lays the foundation of the church, not upon our works as humans, but he lays the foundation of the church on the rock of the gospel. And then Paul and Barnabas jumped in and they shared their own experiences of seeing God at work among the Gentiles, how they were being saved, not 
through works of the law, but through faith in Christ. And so then James comes in and he brings a resolution to this theological tension. He brings an answer to that question. And he does so in an interesting way by looking at scripture, right? So Peter and Paul had given kind of their firsthand testimony or experience of what they'd seen, how they'd seen God at work in the world. But then James, in order to settle the matter, he goes to scripture. He goes to the prophets. He goes to Amos to affirm, yes, this is what God said he was going to do. God said that he was going to visit the Gentiles and bring them to himself, gather them under his name, not by them following the law, uh, but, but through redemption in Christ. So the law doesn't reconcile us to God, but the gospel does. And the gospel reconciles us to God. It also resolves the tensions. It also resolves the hostilities that rise up between us, that rise up between you and I as Christians. So let's look now at that second tension, the cultural tension in Acts 15. So my point B there, the gospel resolves tensions between Christians of different cultures. So let's keep reading in Acts 15. We'll start in verse 19, uh, reading through 31. So this is James speaking. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. What a wonderful thing, right? That's his resolution. Let's not trouble them. Uh, But should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses had had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. Brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you, with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, from blood and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. So the resolution to the theological tension was clear and decisive. We're saved by grace, not by works. Christians don't have to follow the law of Moses. But this theological tension about the hostilities between us and God hopefully you've noticed, it's been accompanied along the way by cultural tension as well about how the hostilities or potential hostilities between Christians are going to be resolved. So Israel, as the people of God, they were united by a common history, they were united by the law of Moses, and they were united by a common culture that was developed around the law of Moses. But now Jewish Christians are being asked to welcome Gentile Christians into the church, Gentiles who had never lived under the law. And so James proposes a solution to this cultural tension as well. 
And, and his solution to the cultural tension is based on the solution to the theological tension, right? It's based on the truth of the gospel. So, the solution doesn't have to do with how we are saved, that's been settled, but with how we should live in relation to others. So in light of the gospel, those Gentile believers are told to abstain from four things. The first three have to do with food, what you eat. So don't eat that which has been sacrificed to idols, blood, or that which has been strangled. And then fourth, they're told to abstain from sexual immorality. And what an odd list, right? Um, the, the believers in Antioch, they read it and they, they rejoiced. They thought this was wonderful. But what are you and I supposed to make of that today? Well, it's not a comprehensive list of how Christians should live. We can start there. Instead, the purpose of that letter was to address a specific point of tension about how these Jewish and Gentile Christians were supposed to get along with each other. So when the, the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem came to the conclusion that Christians, Gentile Christians, don't have to obey the law, they don't have to live under the law of Moses, that was going to mean just on a practical level, some pretty difficult cultural adjustments for those Jewish Christians. It meant that they were committed to welcoming others who did things differently from them. Uh, maybe people who had strange habits, strange customs, strange diets. And it meant that they were potentially going to be, potentially going to be looked down upon by other Jews in Jerusalem who saw them fellowshipping or associating with Gentiles. And so in light of that, James instructs those Gentile Christians to, you know, you know, to meet them in the middle, to make some adjustments or some accommodations themselves. And, and, and the motivation is to avoid some of the things that were going to be uh, particularly offensive to Jewish people. So sexual immorality is probably included in that list because a lot of the sexual immorality um, in those cities was tied up with worship practice, but those dietary restrictions and kind of pointing out in particular sexual immorality, the motivation from James, the motivation from the church in Jerusalem is saying to those Gentile Christians, here are a few areas where, you know, kind of the points of the most difficulty, the points of the most tension, where if you're willing to accommodate and we're willing to accommodate, here's how we can move together to have greater fellowship and unity with each other. So both the Jewish and Gentile believers approved of this, and they thought it was a great resolution to the cultural tension between them because it offered a reasonable way forward, right? It offered opportunities for them to build relationships with each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. And hopefully the implications for this, of this for you and I today are clear, that we should be willing to make such accommodations and adjustments for the sake of fellowship with each other. I like to think of it this way. If Jewish Christians, whose culture was based on the divinely given law of God, right, spoken by the voice of God from Mount Sinai, if their culture was based on the, on the law of God and they were willing to make compromises, then certainly you and I can make accommodations for the sake of fellowship, for the sake of love with each other. So that's the cultural tension. And then third, let's look at this personal tension. So point C, the gospel gives hope in the face of seemingly irresolvable tensions. So Acts 15, verse 36. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. 
But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And, and there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So let me just say at the start that the resolution, if we want to call it that, to this personal dispute between Paul and Barnabas, it's pretty disappointing, right? So in Jerusalem, at the council, all the apostles, all the elders, elders, the whole church, Jew and Gentile, they were figuring things out. They were coming up with resolutions and everyone was happy about it. And then we get to this personal dispute, what to do with Mark, who had abandoned them when things got tough. And Acts 15 kind of ends on a little bit of a downer of a note. They didn't come to a resolution, but they, Barnabas and Paul went their separate ways. So we look at this, uh, Mark and Barnabas, they were cousins. Uh, Mark had traveled with Paul and Barnabas earlier. Things got tough. He abandoned them. So maybe the Apostle Paul, maybe there was some wisdom in what he was saying. Uh, perhaps he had good reasons for not wanting Mark to come with them at this time. But Barnabas, his name means son of encouragement, right? So he wanted to give Mark another chance. He wanted to encourage and restore him. So maybe there was some wisdom in what Barnabas wanted to do. Maybe he had good reasons for insisting that Barnabas come. But in the end, Barnabas went his way with Mark and Paul went his way with Silas. So let me just make three quick observations about that personal tension and try to draw a conclusion from it. So first, the story's told in a very matter-of-fact manner. Luke doesn't really portray either one of them of being right or being the winner in this situation. Second, uh, we can observe that the conflict doubled the amount of missionaries, right? Doubled the amount of workers or number of workers who went out. So instead of it just being Paul and Barnabas, it was Paul and Silas going this way, Barnabas and Mark going that way. And then third, uh, based on the evidence from Paul's later writings, the tension between Paul and Mark, the tension between Paul and Barnabas, seems to have come to a peaceful resolution. And I say that because in 2 Timothy 4.11, Paul says that Mark is very useful to me for ministry. So we look at that personal tension, and I think the conclusion we can draw from it in light of the gospel is that God continues to use us for his purposes in spite of our shortcomings and failures. Maybe Paul was wrong about Mark, maybe Barnabas was, but they were both wrong, I think, in letting that disagreement become divisive. Um, but because of the gospel, because God saves us by his own power and mercy, we have hope that he will continue to use us even though we're sinners, right? Even when we get stuck in situations and in, in, in tensions with people that we can't resolve. Uh, and that's true, we can have hope because the success of the Christian life it's not based on a perfect track record or, or our ability to resolve every tension. The success of the Christian life and the work God calls us to do is grounded in God's mercy. Paul needed mercy. Barnabas needed mercy. You need mercy. And I need mercy. So we've looked in Acts 15 at a theological tension regarding how we're saved. We've looked at a cultural tension regarding how we get along with each other. And we've looked at this personal tension uh, that seemed irresolvable in the heat of the moment. And we see how the gospel helps us. We see how the gospel resolves all those tensions. The law shows us how to resolve those tensions, but it doesn't give us the power to do so. 
So the gospel opens a way forward. It gives us hope both for today and for the age to come when people from every nation will worship Christ together in perfect unity. So I hope in, in some way you've been challenged or encouraged as we've, as we've looked at these tensions. But I want to just close with, with a final thought by pushing a little bit further. And I want you to consider how the truth of the gospel ought to shape and soften and humble our hearts as we think about uh, our own life, how we deal with those tensions and hostilities we face. So I just want to quickly draw your attention to Acts 15.26, where Paul and Barnabas are described as men who risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. When we think about risk today, we usually think about probabilities and predictions, right? How likely is it that this or that bad thing is going to happen? But that's not what's going on, on here. It's not as if Paul and Barnabas were commended because of their abilities to calculate and avoid the dangers that came with preaching the gospel. If that were so, that would make their success or their failure dependent on how well they can navigate those risks and those dangers that they face. Uh, as one author put it, that sort of thinking would make the blessings and the good parts of the Christian life a manner of forecast instead of a manner of promise. But we want to live as if the good things that God has for us in the Christian life are, are a matter of promise, the promises that God has made to us. Now, it's certainly true that Paul and Barnabas risked their lives for the sake of the gospel in the sense that they had many close encounters with various dangers. But if we dig a little bit deeper into that word, the word that's translated as risked, we'll see that it has less to do with calculations about what might happen. It has less to do with what sort of personality you have, right? How excited you get at the thought of a mob chasing you out of town or something like that. Um, but it has to do with the act, an act of wholehearted devotion to Christ, regardless of what the future may hold, regardless of how daring or timid you might be. That same word is used of Jesus. At a basic level, it means to deliver something up, to offer it up, or to hand something over. So Jesus delivered up his life as a sacrifice on the cross. Now, perhaps you aren't the Apostle Paul, Perhaps your life won't ever be at risk for the name of Christ like his was, right? Those particular circumstances, perhaps it will be. But either way, whatever the circumstances of life that God leads us through, whatever shape our lives may take, uh, we're all called to offer our lives as an act of devotion to Christ. So in Ephesians 5.2, we're called to follow Christ's example. We're told to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. There's that word, Christ gave himself for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So we're called to do the same. We're called to risk our lives, to offer them up sacrificially for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So as we think about uh, the tensions and hostilities between us and God, between us and others, that's the posture of heart that we should have in relation to those tensions. That's that posture of humility and selflessness. That's the approach that we should have to these tensions that's shaped by the gospel. Let me close this in prayer. God, we thank you that uh, since the days of Abraham, you've had a good and wise and loving way uh, to reunite us as rebellious people to yourself through the cross of Christ. And in that, you've had a way to reunite
uh, people from every nation under your name. Uh, We're thankful for that. Uh, I pray for each one of us in this room that if there is hostility uh, between us and you, God, uh, that we would turn to Christ and be forgiven and be restored to you. I also pray that you would give us the boldness and wisdom and courage to risk our lives in whatever way you're calling us to today uh, for the name of Jesus, uh, for the sake of love and unity with others. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen.